Welcome to Help I Need an Adult. We're here at Foggy Water Studios, as always, with my co-host, Megan, Mixmaster Chef, and our very special guest, Spencer. Uh, just want to let you guys know that he had an art portfolio. This is kind of a, uh, I guess, not really a presidential alert, but a Help I Need an Adult alert. Um, you guys, it's a gas station, all good road. It was a art portfolio, a briefcase. How big did you say it was, Spencer? It could be about maybe 17 by 17 inches. Gotcha. It's got tons of art, years worth of art in it. Something super special, Spencer. Uh, again, all good road, black briefcase. And if you guys could, if you know it, where it is, if you have it, you can contact us here at Help I Need an Adult. We can get in touch with Spencer, get this back to him. It means the world to him. It would mean the world to us here at Help I Need an Adult if we could reunite him with it. You know, years of art, years of just emotion and sweat that he's poured into these paintings and these drawings. I mean, I'm sure everyone here at home watching or listening to this knows what we, you know, what we're talking about that when you, when you put that much effort into something, it's, it just breaks your heart to lose it. So let us know if you guys find it, Mr. Spencer, if you want to tell them a couple more words about it, just so they know how much it means to you. Um, as was mentioned, that's a lot of work in there that I put a lot of energy and effort into, um, it's a year's worth of work. Um, that's all I'll say about it. Um, this whole, uh, most of them are signed by me, Spencer Muldrow, and most of them are, um, graphite and charcoal. So if by chance someone's know their whereabouts, I'd really appreciate it if, um, I could see them again. We'd appreciate it as well. Speaking of art, if you don't mind, we'd like to kind of talk to you about how you got involved in art and what you've been through and just give us, you know, let us know your story because I think a lot of people could benefit from it, Spencer. As far as art is concerned, um, I grew up in the 50s. Well, I was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s. Um, and I grew up in a real bad neighborhood. Um, when I look out my bedroom window, 30 yards outside of my bedroom window were pimps, drug dealers, burglars, scramblers, gamblers. I could look out my bedroom window and see all of that stuff. So my mom tried to shield us from it as best as she could. So each Christmas she would buy a lot of um, paint by number paints and she would buy us a lot of um, drawing tablets and drawing books and things of that nature. And being from the DC area, it snowed a lot. Um, and it was cold during the winter time. So, um, that's was one of the things that we did in our household was always get to the table and paint by numbers. And I have a brother that's a year older than I and a sister that's a year younger. So we would challenge each other and always would take our stuff and show it to our mom um, for approval. And I never forget, my brother was a better drawer than me. He was a better <laughs> artist. We would um, use those old, real thick dictionaries mm. and we would just open them and try to draw the different things in the dictionaries. Mm. And um, I never forget, my brother would take his artwork to my mom when we were in the fourth third grade and stuff like that. And my mother would look at it and say, oh my God, 
that's Gilbert, do you did that? And um, she would really dote on him. And um, I never forget, I would take my artwork to her and say, Mom, look what I did. And I wouldn't get the same response. And um, I kind of walk away. She said, yeah, that's nice, Spencer. And I go on back to the table with my head kind of down. But I would always say to myself, I'm going to draw his ass one day. <laughs> I'm going to get him one day. And uh, make a long story short, there were no video games. There were no cell phones to have. So um, we would challenge ourselves. The drawing was a big challenge right. for young people in general, not just my family. A lot of young people when I was growing up um, put energy in the drawing. But uh, what made me realize that I had something as far as drawing is concerned was um, when I was in the fifth grade, the art teacher asked everybody to um, choose a partner. The tables were long tables and one person had to get on the other side of you, your partner. And um, the people on this side all had a piece of paper and a pencil and everybody over on the other side were the subjects and all of the other kids. Yeah. And so we were, the, the assignment was to draw the person in front of you. And my classmates, um, I guess, didn't take it serious. They were just real, real fast, draw a stick person with ears and stick hands and stuff. Like, oh my God, look at look at your niece, look at your niece. <laughs> um, they would draw them with all kind of this crazy stuff. But me personally, I really put a lot of energy into trying to draw the girl that was in front of me. And um, everybody were in the class were in awe. Oh my God, look, oh my God, it looks like Michelle. It looks like her. And um, after I got finished drawing it, the teacher took the picture and she put it on the blackboard, I mean, up on the wall. And it stayed there the entire school year. What else made you feel and that made me feel it, it. It motivated me to say, "Hey, I've arrived a little bit." Right. I may, you, you know, you kind of like, "I am good." I, I. It makes you just mm -hmm. validate you almost, right? It did. Perfect word. It validated me uh, to a degree, and um, then also in this, once I got into sixth grade, I drew a picture of. That's the year that Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five came out, and they were like. The Beatles and Michael Jackson, there oh, yeah. was nothing on earth that was bigger. Nothing could touch them. So um, there was a Jackson 5 cartoon back in the 70s. I remember I remember watching it. Not, obviously not back in the 70s, but mm -hmm. I do remember watching it. So I drew a picture of, of Michael Jackson, the Michael Jackson um, cartoon character. And um, when I came back to art, a few days to the art room, a few days later, the picture was missing. So I really, really didn't put that much emphasis on the picture because by that time I had drawn quite a few pictures of Michael Jackson, right. you know, but I did, had realized it was missing and thought very little of it. So the very next year I get in the seventh grade, bus to a different school way across town and they had an art exhibit and lo and behold, <laughs> a year later, my picture is in the art exhibit. So as you walking down, seeing the stuff on the wall, immediately 
that's my picture. And when I went to grab my picture <laughs> off of the easel that it was sitting on, the girl that submitted it, and it had a second place little ribbon on it. Wow. And the girl that had submitted the picture, when I went to grab the picture, she attacked me like a bingo tiger. Oh, my goodness. You're lying. That's not your effing picture. You always effing with somebody. I'm tired of your ass trying to wow. fight being hurt. Oh, my God. She really wanted yeah. that picture. She real. I mean. You always. And even got the teachers on her side. Oh, wow. You know, because I stayed in trouble. So here it is. Spencer Ch- starting trouble again. Right. And um, anyway, um. I grabbed a piece of um, an empty sheet of paper and I start drawing him. I say, you ain't take nothing from me for real. I say, if you draw it, draw it again. I mean, draw it again. There you go. I say, I bet you can't draw it again. But she was still, you Pitching a fit. Bam. From that, I said, hey, man, you got a little something here. And um, I continued to draw, but um, it was just one of the things that I did. But that's what one of the things that hooked me to drawing. And I've always challenged myself. Um, I've always um, been fascinated by cameras. Right. And the um, notion that I can duplicate what a camera did. So all of my pictures, I try to get as close to, um, I try to draw it as close to the camera as I can. You're like a human camera. Mm-hmm. That's what I try to do. And so if I fall short, <laughs> I've fallen short, but that's always my goal. But you know what's great about that though is a camera is a piece of technology, right? It can capture a moment, but when you draw that, you can you can see in the picture, you can see almost the emotion and the feeling and, and kind of this almost the state of mind that you're in when mm. someone, you know, when someone views that, you can just kind of see what that person was, what mood they were in, what, what, uh, what they were thinking at that moment, how, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? How, what that picture means to them. So that's why I like hand-drawn things. Pictures are awesome because it's great that you can capture a moment in time mm-hmm. and keep it with you forever. But when someone draws that, it's almost like it transforms it, I it's, guess you could say. It's um, helped me maintain my sanity um, <laughs> because I've traveled um, some rocky roads in my life. Um, I started out at 12 years old. Like I said, the neighborhood that I lived in, um, nobody aspired to be a doctor. Right. Nobody aspired to be an engineer or a pilot and stuff like that. In my neighborhood, in the era of time that I grew up in, um, the TV shows, the man, my favorite TV show was it, um, it Takes a Thief. That was a show that came on in the 60s and 70s. It Takes a Thief. It was about a guy named Alexander Mundy. Yeah. Called him Al Mundy. And his job every episode was to steal something that was coveted, something that um, was extremely hard to steal. I mean, you had to go scale buildings and and 
all kind of stuff and you had to um had to come down the had, had to um cut a hole in the ceiling and come down in the mid middle of the museum without touching the floor and then get the um the diamond out of the um case that was in the middle of the floor and then climb back up and then um there was another show that's called that was called Harry in your pocket yeah and that was about a pickpocket team and they um that thing was to be able to pickpocket people and they showed you um the intricacies of um pickpocketing then you had Bonnie and Clyde you had John Dillinger you had pretty boy Floyd babyface Nelson you had those people were my heroes right those were the people that I aspired, not necessarily to be, but to be better than. Um, and so did everybody in my neighborhood. So we established crews. They call them gangs now, but we call them crews. Right. Um, but we had um, crime crews. We had burglary crews. And we start putting emphasis in being able to break in stuff that can't be broke into right we start um stealing cars um there at a young age i start um 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 robbering i was on i was robbing people with a gun at 13 and 12 years old and um just to show you how warped minded we were at the time there were two guys in our neighborhood that got shot by a motel um, worker, right. an old man that worked at this motel. He had a reputation of not taking no shit. You go up in there to rob him, you better have yourself together. And he um, shot a, fr um, a friend of mine named George Taylor. So instead of taking that as a, a sign to say, hey, it's if time you to rob stop. <laughs> anything, you better not rob him. Right. But what um, it had adverse effects on us, our thing was we were determined we were going to rob him. Right. That particular motel. And um, we did. Um, me and three of my friends, we went up there on a school night. School is the next morning. Right. Um, eighth grade. And uh, we went and we robbed the motel. And um, as we were coming out, on a busy street, a police was checking his, he didn't even know what was going on right across the street. And I mean, a big glass window, bigger than that. <laughs> and, but he can plainly see in there, but he don't know what's going on right. in there. And he's not sitting there looking in there. He's doing paperwork. So mind you, this guy has already shot um, someone Right. Trying to rob him. So, but when we see the police cross the street, it's time to get up out of there. And um, I had the gun and almost got my friend killed because I panicked and, and almost left him up in there. But I realized what I was doing and, and told my friend, come from behind the counter now. Come, 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 police, 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 police. So at any rate, we backed out and from the time we walked out of there, it was like a full force, a full-fledged chase with the police, because he's seen it now, because man in the window now, he could see it. Right. So straight up out of there. <laughs> 
so we run and run and made it back up into the projects and um we got away with that and um then we had um there was a gun um shop in our town right that uh we went in and that made the news um that it had to be done by um highly trained professionals all on the news and stuff lo and behold it was these project kids and didn't know what to do with all these guns right i mean i ain't no more than 13 years old hell i'm doing with guns like this so um make a long story short one of the guys that broke in there with us had an older brother his older brother were gonna get them all for us needless to say we never seen any more of the guns but um that right there was indicative of how i spent my days as a youth trying to figure out what crime we're going to commit it was a status symbol to come back up town to the projects with a this is what i've got with this a, is what we got with a lot of money but when i was in the ninth grade i was standing on a corner and all of the older guys in my neighborhood knew me as that little young crazy ass um that little crazy ass youngin and they knew that i did a lot of stuff so um one night when i was in the ninth grade one of the older guys i guess he was about 22 drove by and a um electric 225 a deuce and a quarter old long deuce and a quarter he had on his old pimp brim and fur coat and everything he said young and you want to make some money and i said yes and you know i do he said get in he said we got this house we're gonna rob he said only thing you gotta do once we get in there is cut the telephone cords he gave me a knife I want you to cut the telephone cords and tie everybody up with the, with the telephone cords how old were you at this point were you still 13 or no i was i was 15 at that time wow. i didn't got to be 15. wow so um knocked on the door so it was two of them both of them were in their 20s and i was 15. so my job was to knock on the door knock on the door there one on this side of the door another on this side of the door when the door cracks bloom go up in there but lo and behold guess who answers the door uh -oh. we are miles and miles away from where we live at right thinking that ain't no way in the world nobody way out here gonna know us when we're not and when um when the door opened the girl that answered the door was one of the girls that go to my school recognized wow. me immediately she didn't know me personally like we wasn't friends but she recognized me and i recognize you you know as that no moment just uh oh she had ran away from home she was a runaway and that's where she was staying at up there in this particular location where they sold dope and did dope and this that and other so I can't turn back now. And there's about seven or eight people in the house, everybody on the floor. And um, make a long story short, after tying everybody up, ransacking the house, um, no one, what we were there for wasn't there. What we went there for wasn't there. So the older guy was sitting on the couch and everybody laying on the floor 
He said, everybody just calm down. There's a bee here. He kept looking at his watch. About four or five minutes later, knock came on the door and it was the package. It was a big leather satchel. And um, in, the leather, in, in the leather satchel was every kind of drug, basically you can name. Mr. Natural, Angel Dust, Window Pain, Purple Haze, PCP, Cocaine, Heron. I mean, it was in there. So they give me the bag. Uh, a knock came on the door. I answered the door. They stand on the side. Bam. So it's the, it was the guy that was delivering the package. So um, <clears throat> immediately they took the package, gave it to me. I went back to the car. And I'm wondering what's taking them so long. I keep looking, where in the hell are they at? Where did we got what we went there for here? They come with one of the guys. So now, not only have we um, robbed, we've kidnapped, you know? Um, so um, brought the guy to the car with a gun on him, get out there on the highway, pull, off, pull on one of the exits, and um, they pushed him out of the car. So needless to say, I'm in the ninth grade at this time. And when I came home from, no, nah, well, let's back up a little bit because something happened as a result of that, that, that I'm ashamed of even to this day. And I feel real, 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 real bad about. Um, after we divided the drugs and stuff, it was too much. I had never seen that much drugs. So they just gave me just a little bit of it. I mean, right. I had a a lot of PCP and you're cut basically marijuana because I ain't know nothing about the speed and um, uppers downers barbiturates and all that stuff so I go back uptown to the projects where all my boys are sitting out on a stoop yeah just talking junk and stuff on a Friday night and I ask them that they want to get high they say you damn right we want to get high I say I got some herb so I'm thinking that it is herb but it's got um, PCP on it, Ooh. and it's in um, the little aluminum foil packs. You know, it's herb, but it's got that PCP. And I had never smoked PCP, and so now we opening up these little aluminum foil things of PCP, and um, roll the joints, and we's passing them around. But this that PCP has a chemical taste to it. So I, um, after one joint, I realized that, hey, I may not want no more of this. But everybody else was talking junk because apparently they hadn't had PCP before. So they were laughing at me. They said, man, where you get this bullshit from? You talking about getting high. How are we going to get high off this bullshit? Right. So I say, roll another. I roll two or three more. Uh-oh. They going around in heavy rotation. Right. Everybody's sitting down. Right why this is going on. And then it came time to stand up. And when it came to stand up time, yeah. it was apparent. That, it's a different story, huh? Oh, man. And they were <laughs> stepping real, 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 real high. They were reaching real, real long and far. They were talking real, real, real loud and just a whole nine yards. So um, make a long story short, it... um really affected two of my friends that hasn't been right to this day. Wow. Yeah. They've effed up their entire life. Um, 
the next morning, um, after all of that was over, um, I came outside and heard that they had gone to the hospital and that system had to be pumped and just that. Oh my gosh. Um, one, is, um, one died maybe two years, three years ago. Never had a job his entire life. And I blame myself for that. He never had a girlfriend, a meaningful relationship. He never had a house, a car, and a driver's license his entire life. And the other one is the same way. I even talk, I talk to him now on the phone. And I feel very, very bad about that. Um, but after the robbery was committed, about a week or two or whatever, I came home from school. My mom said, I don't know what in the hell you've done. Say, but some detectives were here today and they were looking for you. And um, I told them that I'm going to bring you down there to right. talk to them when you come home from school. She took me down there and they had eyewitnesses as you the one, you the one. And they locked me up. They, I, they put me um, in an adult jail and that was an awakening experience because now I'm in here with guys, but they put me in the juvenile cell block, but the juvenile cell block, I still was the youngest one and you were juvenile then up until you were like 17. Right. And just, I became um, immediately introduced to what that, lifestyle and told um it was very very violent um got immersed into it whether you wanted to or into not whether i wanted to or not the, like two or three days after i was there um two guys got to fighting and one put the other in the full nelson parked him right in front of one of those benches in the full nelson and just knocked every single one of his teeth out his bridge of his eyes his nose his cheeks just held just boom 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 then stood him up and then ran him full speed into face into the bars and just bam bam so um at any rate moving fast forward i will go to court for it and i get sentenced to six years in a state penitentiary wow so um I was 15 when it happened and I was um, 16. They held me in the jail for a year until I turned 16 and they sent me to an adult penitentiary. I was the youngest human there by far. And um, right from the start, it was about proving yourself. You know, you have to, I had to be more violent than I really was i had to be more violent than i wanted to be but i was determined that hey i came in here as a man and that's how i'm leaving out so i developed a reputation real real early as being a very very dangerous young person just to be able to survive that mm -hmm. environment that's I who you had to become after i got to this one penitentiary i'm a very very good pool shooter even as a youngster um older guys used to bet on me because my area was full of pool halls and pool rooms and I just grew up shooting pool and I can, by the time I was 13 or so, I could beat most 
adults. So when I got to prison, they were betting on me one night against this older guy. He had to be almost 300 pounds. Ooh. And I beat him. I beat him, shooting pool. And I made a, a, a hell of a shot that, that really shouldn't have been made. And it was the money ball. And all the convicts were giving me high fives and stuff. And um, I had this big old proud smile on my face. And the guy said, oh, bitch, you ain't did shit. Already, you know, I already know the word bitch in jail must be addressed. It's absolutely no, I don't care. You go home, you supposed to be going home in three weeks. The word bitch must be addressed. So um, it's like a challenge almost. And I was much smaller than I am now and shorter. Um, so I said, man, what you say? And before I could um, open my mouth, he was on me. He got this close right up in my face, his face to me. Mm. And he had his finger on my forehead and he had his face this close to me. He said, you heard what the fuck I said. You a bitch and your mama is a bitch. Ooh. So all these inmates looking. So I have to make a decision. Am I going to try to be a hero in front of all of these inmates? Or am I going to use my brain? So I held my head down, act like I was afraid of him because I couldn't beat him in 100 years. I couldn't beat him now. Right. So I held my head down and so that he could leave me alone. And I walked away with my head down, but I knew I had to do something. And later on that night, we were in an open dormitory and um, I got a mop ringer that you squeeze the mop out with. They're plastic now, um, but back then they were steel. And I got that mop ringer and I caught him while he was in bed facing that way. And I come up from that way and um, I bashed his head in with the mop ringer. Um, so moving on, that right there, plus a few other things, it just made me violent. I didn't like being violent. And while I was there, I was on a road game. Yeah, that's my part with this. I was on a, I was on a chain game. Yeah where they actually have chains on your feet and stuff like that. So always knew that I was better than this place, that my mother had raised me better to be a part of what's going on here. Right. And I, um, I was determined that I wouldn't make it my legacy. But we were on the chain gang and we were all talking. And I had got to be about maybe... 18 at 17 at that time. And um, I said, man, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a counselor when I get out of here. We were all sitting around a tree. If you can imagine the movie Life with Martin and how all of them on lunch break yep. sitting up under a tree. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, I'm gonna be a counselor when I get out of here. And the guy said, man, you got to be crazy as hell. He said, with all them damn felonies you got, right. he said, ain't no way in the hell. So we were talking back and forth. So that's when the guy up on the horse with the cowboy hat on and the sunshades with the rifle in his hand, 
He said, oh, Modro, you ain't shit. And you ain't never going to be shit. Y'all stop all that jaw japping. It's time to get back to work. So, bam. I never forget how he said it. Nobody had never said anything like that to me before. Right. And it just like stabbed me. At first, I was like rage, anger, you know? And um, I thought about it. And that thought, and it's just never left my mind. So... I got out of prison. I got out of prison, but I went in there without a GED or a high school diploma. While I was there, I learned how to shoot dice, how to cheat in dice. I learned how to cheat in poker. I learned how to cheat in this, and I learned how to cheat in that. Right. Learned how to um, play three-card molly and all that other stuff. But I did absolutely nothing um, to further my education. I was just as dumb educationally as I was when I went in there. Right. Make a long story short, <clears throat> I got out when I was 17. And there was no parade down my street, down the main street that once I got out, a lot of convicts had this grandiose um, um, idea that once they do get out of prison, that the, the world's going to be out there clapping and cheering and there's going to be, you know what I mean, just a big uproar because you're home. Right, a fanfare for mm -hmm. you. But you learn that shit. You're going to find people that didn't even know that you were gone. They hadn't even realized that you were gone. Right. You know, um, there, were no, there was no fanfare. And I didn't have a GED or high school diploma, but I wanted a job. But what I did do, I always wanted to change my life and get away from the DC area. So I went down to the army recruiting place and I went in there and tried to join the military. And um, in short order, without a G back then if you didn't have a GED, or, I mean, high school diploma, because it was right after the Vietnam War. Right. They were drafting you before the Vietnam War, really, whatever you had. <clears throat> but I didn't have a GED plus. I'm an ex-felon, and they told me, I'm sorry, the military won't be able to use you. Right. That was a blow. So now I'm like, man. So I try to get a job this place, and I try to get a job that place. And doors were slamming in my face. And they was like almost laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, a job, right? You just got them got home in um, abduction, home invasion, uh, robbery. Yeah, whatever. So I began to get discouraged. And um, within two months of me being out, after having spent that three years, right. I robbed a bank. I start robbing banks. So um, um, that went on for a while. And about seven months later, I, was, I had them found a job. <laughs> Amazingly, I found a job. I should have been more patient. I learned patience from that, right. as a matter of fact. Because about a month or so, after I robbed a couple banks, I get a call 
um, at the silk screen printing company and they said that they had my application. They wanted me to come in for an interview. And I went in for the interview and they hired me. So I'm working at the silk screen printing company, but I already know at some point. You're just waiting. At some point. Right. Shit is going to hit the fan (laughs) because I had already been noticing things happening that wasn't right. I'm starting seeing cars in my neighborhood, you know, with white people in them. Ain't no white people in my neighborhood. They stick out like a sore thumb. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Right. And um, then a guy, one of the guys at the corner store, older man, I went in there one day. He said, man, he said, I don't know what you done did. He said, but I ain't spend some folks up in here at FBI. They want to know what denomination of bills you spending up in here. And this man, he said, I don't know what you did, but you better be careful. So, you know, I know that time was one was it's just gonna be a matter of time right so one day i was at work on the silk screen taking the t-shirts off the printer and sending them through the dryer and i heard a sound some men sound behind me that i hadn't heard in this company and i turned around they had the badge in my face spencer Muldrow, fbi you're under arrest for bank robbery and um at the same time, way across town, they were arresting my brother as well at his workplace. And they had the Channel 7 Action News at his location. Wow. They got this Channel 7 Action News at my location. So it makes five o'clock news. Um, two brothers um, showing our face, coming out in the handcuffs and whatnot. So that time, they sent me to federal penitentiary. I got three years in federal penitentiary, just turned 18. And they sent me to a place called Petersburg Federal Correctional Center. Dangerous, dangerous place. And some people in there you probably wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. Oh, man, it was a dangerous place. Right. And it was so dangerous that my introduction to it, while I got my bin with my sheets and pillows and little toiletries and stuff going to the unit that I'm to sleep on. Time I go up, come in the building, walk up the stairs. There was no officer there to say, okay, um, Drew, this be around here. It was almost like a, at the um, control center, they right. told me what unit I'm going to, what my cell is going to be. And, oh man, it was nervous. But when I go up on the floor, Two dudes are running down the hallway full speed, and another guy is behind him with a knife about this long. They run past me. I'm like, whoa. I mean, full speed. But this hallway is going to end. Uh-oh. And once the hallway ended, the guy with the knife caught him at the end and just yang, 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 stabbing him, stabbing him, stabbing him. That was my first day there. Wow. So um <laughs> made an made an impression on you, did it? Made a hell of an impression on me. <laughs> oh man. So the very and the very, very next morning, um all the guys from the guy that did the stabbing was from Virginia. And the guy that he stabbed was from was from DC. Right. So they stick together by uh, geographical locations. 
So if you're from Florida, you're sticking with Florida. You're from New York, you're sticking with New York and so forth and so on. So then the very next morning, all the guys from Virginia, they caught them in the dining hall and start stabbing them and beating them upside the head. Because back then they had little sugar containers on the um on each of the tables right hitting them across the head with sugar containers and all that so i missed i overslept because i didn't know the routine of the of the um situation yet right. so i miss breathless but i heard helicopters and stuff they land the helicopters on the compound taking them out of here by on stretchers and stuff jesus so anyway I still hadn't made a decision to do anything real positive with my life because it was too much negativity around me. I still had to worry about being a bad guy. I had to worry about, you know, that persona you talked about. Exactly. You had to envelop yourself in that. That's right. Because that was the order of the day. That was the only way to survive. Yeah. So some kind of way. And I had never grew up around mexicans or hispanic people and stuff i just didn't know anything about it i I mean just didn't know anything about spanish people had never went to school with the spanish people hadn't been around people that talk spanish right so a guy asked me for a spanish guy asked me for a cigarette one day and i was talking to a guy and i gave him the pack of cigarettes to for him to get him one but some kind of way i had my back turned real real fast he took out three and i saw it and I confronted him about it. And he said, man, you're a motherfucking liar. I ain't, I, you don't know the fuck you talking about, dude. So me being 18 and whatnot, so I'm mouthing back. And I said, man, meet me down. Meet me down in the pool room. So he said, you got them right. I'll meet you down in there. Yeah. So this is in August. Never forget it. So I goes down into the pool room. I'm waiting. I'm the only one down in the pool room except for another guy. Um, an older guy. Had to be about 40 or so. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. He was shooting pool. So I'm down there. <laughs> I'm ready to fight. You're getting pumped up. So now two Mexican dudes came down. Sorry. Into the um, pool room in the middle of August with trench coats on. And the federal government, they are, um, they supply you with old army surplus, everything. All of your clothes are old uh, army surplus. So they got on green trench, all green army trench coats. So I already know what time it is. <laughs> they got knives. Wow. You know? So I got a pool stick in my hand. So immediately when they come through the door with the trench coats on, I take the pool stick and just start going to them. Right. And um, the guy that was, so they start trying to jump me. And the guy that was down there say, it ain't going to be no jumping. He start grabbing pool balls, blam, 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 and start throwing at them. So all I know is I got to get out of here. Right. Because there's one way in and one way out. But I'm over here. Right. And they, they hear the door is there and I'm still here. There. So at any rate, it was real work to get out of there. And while I was running out of there, up the stairs, a correctional officer done heard all the commotion and he running down. Right. So as he running down, I cover my face and I'm running up. 
And by back then I had long braids. Right. So I ran into my cell and undid all my braids real, real fast. And then by that, within seconds, you can, a big alarm goes off. It's a big ass, like the um, hurricane warning alarm things. Right. That went off. Clear the compound, clear the compound. All inmates report to your unit immediately. So you knew something serious was going on. So I ran to I ran to my cell and they came have the the book of pictures for that unit. Right. And they came by each unit. I mean each cell and they look look, tell everybody to stand by the door. They look at me that but at that time when he saw me I had braids. Right. And um, I ran and took everything out. So he looked at me and looked at that. He went on about his business. It was about five or six of them. So I'm thinking I'm out of the, the woods. The heat's off of you. So make a long story short, they doubled back about maybe a half hour later. Uh-uh. Locked me up, take me to isolation. And they kept me in isolation for like six months. Mm-hmm. Wow. Solitary confinement, room size of the bathroom. Um, they wouldn't allow me back on the compound because they say that there was a race war in effect and there's a price on my head. That if I was to go back out there, that I would be killed. So they had to find somewhere in the United States that was that I could go to. Transfer you to somewhere else, right? So one morning, I guess, before daybreak, they told me to pack my stuff. And they, in the middle of the night, they took me to Richmond, Virginia's airport. And they put me on a plane. And they flew me to a place called Butner, North Carolina. Butner Federal Correctional Center. That's where they sent John Hinckley after he shot Reagan. They sent Jim Baker there once he got um, all messed up. They sent Mayor, Mayor, Mayor Marion Barry, ex-DC's mayor. A lot of your upper class or high profile criminals, they, they sent there. Lo and behold, that was the place that saved my life. Because um, again, I was the youngest prisoner there. I was 18, but there was not another 18-year-old there. But that was a research prison. There was a prison that was, it was new. It was, the the concept was new. They said that, hey, we want to take these prisons over here with all the bars and all of the crazy typical prison look. Right. with With the guard towers and the guns and the keys. We want to see how an individual from this prison would do in a prison over here with no bars. Um, no bars, you can have your wear your own clothes. We're gonna offer all kinds of educational programs. We're gonna offer psychology. We're gonna offer business management. We're gonna offer business law. We're gonna offer um, sociology. We're gonna order um, offer optical mechanics, teach you how to make eyeglasses. We're going to put you in a cafeteria that looks like a college cafeteria where you go up there behind a 
up on the wall, they got menu of, of what you want to eat coming through the breakfast line. You can order you a Texas omelet with little extra onions, be light on the green peppers. And, you know, it was the, the experience was totally different. You could wear your own clothes. You, you had a key to your own room. You can have up to $10 cash money on you. They had vending machines there. They had wow. a golf course there. They had a um, state-of-the-art gym, state-of-the-art um, auditorium. In the um, cafeteria, it, it had it like how you go to Quick Trip, the fountain machine. Oh, yeah. You go get any kind of soda you want. There's nobody saying, okay, you done had enough and all of that. It was just a totally different environment. The environment was um, based on people doing positive things with their life. So now I didn't have tough guys on my unit at all time. I'm there with older men, older guys, all older guys that was doing something with going to this school program, going to that school program. So that's when I enrolled in the GED program. And I enrolled in the GED program in, in short order within months. I really took for granted how smart I really was or how much I really did retain from um, my time of going to school. Right. And um, I got to GED and that and that motivated me and inspired me and made me believe that I could do um, better things. So that's when I enrolled in um, psychology and start because I wanted to know a little bit more about myself. Why am I so gutsy? You know, why would I take the, what about me right. make me um, so gutsy that I would gamble with my life and my freedom the way that I have all of my life. Why am I so violent? Why am I so ready to show how violent I can be? So once I got into psychology and um, business law and stuff and start going to um, self-image psychology groups and settings and stuff, I, I began to get a, a a higher perception of myself. I began to get that feeling that I could do anything that I put my brain to. Yeah, you can do more with your life. I can do more with my life, and I and it also made me um, goal oriented. I went to, like I say, the self image psychology. It taught you how to write your goals down and yeah. how to have them visual. And I had them written down in my cell. And one of my goals, my goals weren't very numerous. There were about four to five of them. And my first goal was to get me a job once I got out of prison. Oh, I also learned bricklaying there. They had trades there. They had welding. They had bricklaying. They had all the mechanics, all the body mechanics. They had machine shops. The federal penitentiary saved my life. That's a very revolutionary way of rehabilitating people. You know, like like you said, it changed your life. I bet it changed a lot of people's lives because it did. It's almost like they're giving you a chance to say, we think you can do better and that you can make something of yourself. Here's a chance. Mm -hmm. Show us what you're made of. And one of my goals when I got out <clears throat> was to get a job. My first goal was to get a job. And 
once I left the federal pr prison, right. I had a six month detainer back from DC from getting locked up because I was still on probation when I got locked up for the other stuff. Right. You know, so I had to go back to the state prison gotcha. for six months. So when I went to the state prison, I met a guy whose brother owned a bricklaying company. And it was a very known bricklaying company in our town. And um, and once I knew his name, I knew his I knew of his family. Right. And he said, man, he said, uh, and then we start talking bricklaying talk. We just talked a lot of bricklaying talk. So he told his brother about me and, his, and the very next day of me getting out of prison, I went to work as a bricklayer, you know? So I didn't have to come out go around looking for a job, being rejected and stuff. No, you can't. No, you can't. So the very next day after I got out, I was on a wall laying brick. So after I did that for a while, I said, hey, it's time to get to my goals. I did that for about, about a year because yeah. my goal was to get me to get me a job. My second goal was to get my own spot. I had got my own apartment. That's awesome, man. Okay. I got my own car, brought it um, in cash, a Volvo. Okay, so things is lifting, lightening up a little bit, right. brightening up. I wasn't committing crimes. I was, everybody was proud of me, my, especially my family. You're you checking know, those because, goals off, man. I bet it made you feel. Mm -hmm. It made my mother so, so proud because all her life, she'd been going to court with me. All her life. So did she... She stuck with you no matter what. She stuck with me no matter what. I don't care how far the road was that she had to travel. Yeah. She was always there. Always there. It's nice to have a almost like a pillar mm -hmm. that can you know, like you said, I'm in I'm in a lot of trouble, but she's there to kind of, you know what? When you get out, I'm gonna be here. Mm -hmm. And I'm always gonna be praying for you and thinking of you. Yeah. And so I didn't she cried on many days in those courthouses. Yeah. You know, um, telling the judges I've done the best I can. Please let him go. And and she's even got a bond reduced once by just crying just uncontrollably in the court. Just say, okay, Miss Mother, we'll let him go. But you got to promise you he's gonna get hurt. You got this, you got the um you got to um, be on top of this young man. This young man right here is out here doing dangerous stuff and he's going to get hurt badly. Right. You know, so anyway, now it's time for me to really go for my next goal. And my goal that I told him, guys, when I was under that tree that I'm going to work at a juvenile detention center, I took off of work. I got myself looking nice and I went back to the exact same juvenile detention center that I was locked up at as a juvenile that was different administration and everything. So the people there didn't um, remember me, but I introduced myself by then. I could look at people in the eyes. I could talk to them. I could just, I was, I was more of a man now. You could hold your head up high. Exactly. Right. So I introduced myself. He brought me in his office and we talk, say, you know, Mr. Muldrow, I'd love to have you. I think you'll be a good asset to what we got going on here. He said, unfortunately, we don't have any openings at this moment. Yeah. He said, but he said, in the next county over, they just built a brand new juvenile detention center from the ground up. He said, they haven't even brought kids there yet. 
He said, and I know the um, director over there. He said, um, how do you feel about that? I said, I'd love to work for that. He said, hold on for a minute. He picked up the phone, called the director there. Rice, this is, um, he said, this is uh, Dave Lilly over at uh, Alexandria Juvenile Detention Center. He said, I got a man sitting in front of me that um, I think that you really, really would like to meet. He said, all right, send him over. I went out there to the detention center, a hundred bed facility. The front door was open. They hadn't even, you know, they were still in there painting and spraying. Didn't and populate it yet or anything. So I went in there and I talked to him. And while I was in prison, I had gotten a lot of different awards and um, accolades and whatnot, uh, certificates for Special Olympics and just, just a whole lot of stuff. I had about that many. And as he thumbed through them and whatnot and talked to me, he said, man, he said, I'd love to have you working here. He said, but again, we've just manned all, uh, manned um, the facility with counselors. He said, um, but I noticed here that you have a baking certificate. Yeah. Because I learned to bake while I was there. And um, he said, I noticed you have a baking certificate. Do you know how to bake well enough? to teach people. That's what I did in, when I was in prison. They would send inmates from other prisons to my prison for me to train them. And then they sent them to other prisons because there's a shortage of bakers in prisons. So I say, I sure can. He say, what do you think about the prospect of being a baking instructor here? Bam. I say, I love that. So got your foot in the door, got my foot in the door. So I went on as a baking instructor and lo and behold, that's how I got my foot in the door. I started volunteering counseling and whatnot. And um, I did real well in it, but this was the eighties. Something very, very bad happened in the United States in the eighties. The um, United States of America was inundated with cocaine in the eighties. You know, um, and it started out, as you can remember, it's a Studio 54 situation. I mean, it was snorting cocaine was a status symbol. Right. And um, I was working at the juvenile detention center, had been there five years, had, was the only staff member in the entire juvenile court system in 19... 85 to receive an outstanding performance award for dedicated services. They gave me a $5,000 check, picture in the paper, big write-up and everything. Um, so I got that for um, outstanding service. That was, that was a real boost to my sense of self-worth. But one night at a staff party for the counselors, I went to a party and I snorted cocaine. Uh -oh. For the first time ever. Yeah. Okay. It was all well and good. I snorted coke and went on back to work. And so make a long story short, every payday. Now I'm buying me some cocaine. I'm snorting it. So needless to say, um, that I was e as efficient as of a human as I was once drugs was introduced, I started being late for work here and there and 
just wasn't a human that I was. And um, so we, so in 1986, I think I tried crap, smoking it. Now you talking about something that really changed my life. Makes you feel good. Makes that you- changed my life for the absolute, loot, loot worse. Yeah. Um, it, I felt so, it, it changed my life and made me such a person that I didn't like. I didn't want to be fake anymore. I didn't want to be phony anymore because I hear, you know, I'm still working at this detention center and I'm doing some dark shadow ass stuff when I'm not here. So I quit. I quit. I quit and ran the streets for a little while. And, um, then I met a young lady while I was running the streets. She was on drugs. And lo and behold, she and I became an item. And I left her. I mean, I, we became an item and something happened and transpired where I wasn't with her anymore. So she came out one day looking for me and asked me to please come home. And I act like I was bigger and beyond her. She say, fine, motherfucker, then I will kill this baby that I have inside of me. Wow. She was pregnant by me. And um, so that kind of like, whoa, jolted, jolted me. So I did return home and went through the pregnancy with her and everything. And she had a, she had my son. And um, that made me pull myself back in and I got a job and began to work and be responsible. And then she got pregnant again and had my daughter. So now I have a son that's 28, because we're talking 28 years ago, maybe 29. And I have a daughter by her that's 27. Best thing that could have ever happened to me, my two best friends. Um, but going back to that era of time, uh, she having those kids grounded me, but I was still dipping and dabbing with if, with drugs because I wasn't working in an environment with kids anymore. I was right. working at a chemical production company. I was a chemical production specialist. All of the um, chemicals. Um, in, that you have in your kitchen, the cleaning yeah. supplies, bleaches, right. and degreasers, oven cleaners, all that kind of stuff. I was um, I worked at a plant where they brought me from the ground up and taught me how to do it, and I came became their chief chemical production person. So we was living a nice little life. Um, how old were you at this time, Spencer? At that time, I was thirty. I could have been 30, I had, uh, 30, 29, 30. Right. Okay. So my kids got to be, my son was um, starting first grade and my daughter was starting kindergarten. Right. Some kind of way, not being able to keep a job because when you're using drugs, you can't keep a job. 
you ain't gonna keep a job. And um, I lost that job. So now I am jobless and I have two kids. We have a townhouse, cars and things of that nature. So it was always this little something in me that you can always draw from. It was a bad thing, but I knew that I had one skill if I didn't have any, and that was how to rob people. Right. And that's what I did. It was, it was in December, never forget it. As a matter of fact, it was December the 4th, 1992. A few days before Christmas, my son's birthday, I got a son's birthday on December the 4th. I have another son's birthday on December the 9th. My daughter's birthday is January the 21st. December, I mean, um, Christmas is December the 25th. That month, a lot of things came my way. Not even to mention just all the other things, the running of the household, right. I had no job. And um, I felt very useless, worthless as a parent. And I knew of this person that carried a money bag to the bank on Fridays. Been knowing about him for a long time. And that old little something inside of me um, that I wasn't that crazy gene or whatever you want to call it in me, I plotted and I waited until that person was going to the bank. And bam, I get the money bag from them, going back to my, jogging back to my car. There was an undercover police, never knew what I had did, that was at a red light. It was a man and a lady. The male, the red light is up there. The female was in the passenger seat. She said she was looking through her side view mirror she say that's one of their um, routines. She say ain't no point both of us looking straight ahead. She say she was looking through her rear view, um, side view mirror and seen a dark shadowy figure run out of one alley directly across the street into the next. And she told her partner, circle the block for a minute. Something, something's not right. Circle the block. Spidey sense is going on. So they circled a block. So as I was coming out of this alleyway, they were right here. Right. Blocking the alleyway. I mean, not, not blocking it as in I can't get out, but they were there. Yeah. Rolled around and say, sir, let me stop for a minute. Let me speak to you. I'm saying to myself, hot in the hell. They knew about this that fast. I break trying to make it to my car. And, um, it was on a foot, and then it was in the city where no think nothing the alleyways to go through was like row houses. Mm -hmm. So they caught me, and um, I have the money bag on me, and they don't know what I've done. They said, "Why are you running? What's your name?" Hold on, hold on. So um, they go in there and pull out because I had it inside my jacket, and they say he's done something. He's done something. Just hold him. Hold him here. He's done something. They get on the walkie-talkie. 
Um, if there have been a 225 report in such such area, dispatchers say negative. And um, within two, three minutes after holding me, attention all units in such an area such such, they, um, there's been a two, um, 225 reported tall black male, such and such, such. They start giving each other high fives. Bingo! Yes! Yes! Hitting each other, giving each other chest bumps and whatnot. Saying, yes! 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 Bingo! Bingo! So on the way down to the police station, the um, man that was driving the car was telling every police he passed, let me tell you something. Get a load of this. We are at a stoplight. Mamarella said, look at it. She told me to circle the block. I'm thinking she crazy. <laughs> she told me circle block. We circle the block and this guy's come through the alley and put Lisa's on a foot chase and we stop him. We don't know what the hell he done did and explain it. And it came through. He said, man, teamwork, teamwork. So I go back to the penitentiary. They, um, my kids were one in the first grade and one hasn't started school. I go back to the penitentiary at a very, very, very important time in their life, you know? And, um, oh man, it was bad. When I left, their life was, they lived a hard, hard, hard life. My two kids, my two um, kids been in at least seven elementary schools. Their mom was always heading to move, couldn't hold on roof over their head, they was just went through a lot. So when I went to, I went to penitentiary, I stayed there for eight years, mm. eight years. The hardest, the long, and, and mind you, the first time I went, I told you, I was one of the youngest humans there. Right. The last time I went, or last time when I got out, I was one of the older ones there. And that right there was an awakening experience. The younger guys calling me old school, calling me unk, as for uncle, yeah. you know? Right. And um, I knew I had no business there. Um, but my grandparents, my grandparents were living in Fayetteville, North Carolina. They were getting very, very, they were ill and they didn't have much longer to live. And once I got out of prison, I never went back to the D.C. area, moved to North Carolina and helped them in their last years. And, um, but make a long story short, when I got out of prison in 2000, I wasn't even out three weeks when I got a phone call from up in Virginia saying that if you don't want your kids to go into foster care, then you need to get up here because their mom has just been arrested mm. for running an ongoing criminal enterprise. So she was in jail. I've been locked up eight years. You know, I already know I'm not in three weeks ready to assume a single parent's role, you know. But I did. I got it. I, I went up there and I got him. And I brought them back to North Carolina with me. They were very, very wild. They were very unruly. Their mom didn't require them to go to school. 
they were like in the, they should have been in the sixth or seventh grade, but they were like in fifth and fourth type of deal. They were like really behind and um, their self-image and everything was very low. They didn't have manners, no man, no yes sirs, no ma'ams and stuff. They were just almost like kids you didn't rescue from the jungle somewhere. But um, I realized right then and there that it's time for me to do my job right. as a parent. So I got them on the right track and everything and got, got them in school and got them where their grades and stuff um, were, was where they needed to be. So I stayed in North Carolina for three years. My grandparents passed and, um, and I was working at a group home in um, Fayetteville, North Carolina as assistant house manager. And um, I wasn't making any money there. They were like assistant house manager of a group home. How are you gonna pay me $10 an hour? Like you really paying me something good. So I had a cousin here that worked at um, Ridgeview. Have you ever heard of Ridgeview here in Georgia? So um, I had a, I got an interview at Ridgeview and I came down here and they offered me a position at Ridgeview. And at the same time, I um, was offered the position at Ridgeview. They offered me a position at Devereaux. Have you ever heard of Devereaux? It's, it's a place here in Georgia. Hmm. Where is it located? It's, I mean it's right off of um, Carl Parkway. It's called a Devereaux Treatment Network of Georgia. That's where they send the worst of the worst, the ones that are supposedly on their way to the penitentiary. Um, at any rate, <laughs> I went to Devereaux, where I worked as a um, as a unit supervisor. And I did that for six years. And I got a number of different awards there at Devereaux um, for outstanding and dedicated services. And um, one night, about 10 years, maybe 11 years ago now, I haven't been to Devereaux in about 11 years. One night they had an uprising on the female unit. Uh -oh. And um, those are big girls, if you imagine, eating three meals a day, overeating three times a day. At 17 and stuff, you pretty big size. And I was the only male working on the unit that night. And all the other staff on the unit that night were older ladies. So um, we got like eight girls trying to kill one girl. Oh and the girl that they were trying to kill would not stop talking. And uh, she just, she was real feisty. So in the process of, in, in um, juvenile detention um, environments, there are certain holes and restraints that you can put kids in um, and anything else is totally unacceptable. Right. And in the process of trying to secure these gray big old girls in these holes, my wrists were already weak because you have to restrain every day there. It's very volatile environment so my wrists weren't in the best shape as it was after the uprising was over that night both of my wrists one was broken and one was severely sprained oh. 
So that right there set me down. That right there set me down in workman's comp for almost three years. Set me down for almost three years. Did it also have an effect on your art too for those it three definitely, years? Definitely so. Because if you can notice now, my right hand, which I am right-handed, my hand points that way. That's not how you see all this stuff going on. Yes, sir. My hand can't point the way that it's supposed to point. Gotcha. Because the pins are holding it. So I had to... Now I have to move my whole hand to do things where I, at one time I could just use my wrist to do. It's like you have to retrain yourself. I had almost. to retrain myself. And I was, it was very discouraging. It was discouraging because I had given up on art a little bit right. because it was just so hard to re to have to move my whole shoulder and elbow and everything to do something that I could at one time just do with my wrist. Um, but um, where I'm at now? Where was I? The three, well, you were on workers' comp for three years. Okay, after the yeah, after the I, was, I stayed on workers' workers' comp for three years on pain medicine and a little bit of everything else. Yeah, three years of pain medicine, pain mm -hmm. medicine. So needless to say, like everybody else, I became addicted to those whatever they are, Percocets and whatever else kind of sets. The opioids, yeah. Opioids. I became dependent on them, you know? Gets to the point to where it's not even about it feeling good, it's about just having, having being it. normal, mm -hmm. feeling normal. So I can definitely understand and sympathize with people that say, hey, they're on that stuff. Um, so... I stayed on workman's comp for three years. And that's when I went to the, um, I saw a coworker of mine at a gas station. He told me what he was doing now. He had one of his clients in a on a transport. And um, he gave me the address and the number to call. And I called him. That's when they gave me the job as the art instructor at um, Georgia Community Support and Solution for developmentally challenged young adults. And I did it and was did it well. And um, that's when I got the phone call one day when I was driving home. They said, Spencer, um, we can't continue our employee employer relationship. And I said, why is that? And they say, because we have discovered a felony on your record from 1978. And uh, I say, yes, but um, I've told you all about my criminal past. It's not a secret. I haven't tried to hide anything. And she said, well, it's this one thing on here from 78, it's an armed robbery of a bank and all of that. She say, um, and we can't proceed. And like I said, it was devastating. Best job I ever had. The most I felt like I was really making a positive contribution as a citizen of the earth. And um, I pulled a car to the side and I cried and I cried. And um, I just felt like I didn't want to be on earth anymore. I um, 
say, you know, I've tried to prove myself, but every time I try, I try, somebody wants to show me how unworthy I am. And I was also still on those opioids, so that didn't help with how it right. spiraled me into depression. It's almost like they kind of, they push you. Mm -hmm. So I cried, I cried, and I was riding, and I was driving, and I was crying, and across a bridge, and I made a U-turn, and I just pulled my car right up on that bridge. I say, you know, man, I don't want to live anymore. I'm tired of this place. And I jumped off. I jumped off and I landed in some very, very deep water out there in the middle. And um, I tried to go down, I can't, but something just kept pushing me up. It kept pushing me up. It was not an easy thing to do, to stay down. And um, by this time there were cars parking on the bridge there. I guess people saw me when I did it. And there's some ladies up there begging me to please hold on, please hold on. Sir, look up, let me see your eyes. And um, next thing you know, I heard helicopters, by engines, and boats and some old stuff. And they got out there with a boat and they got me and took me to a mental facility or a mental hospital for observation for about a week, I guess it was. And um, after that, I came on back home and um, I was laying around at the house and I knew it was time to do something different. So I got up one day and I put on khakis and do a polo shirt and whatnot and some boots and I went to the temp service and it was full of people. And I thought that, man, I ain't nowhere in the world I'm getting no job in here. It's, this place is too crowded. And I went and sat down for about two or three minutes. And the lady called me back up at the counter. And she said, have you ever worked in a school before? And I said, yes, ma'am, I have. She said, well, um, how you feel about driving out to Cherokee County? Way out on Sixes Road, on 575. I ain't even have enough gas. I didn't have enough gas, buddy, to get out there and back. But I went. And one of the ladies gave me five dollars to make it back home. And I've been there ever since.
and I've stayed there because, again, it was an opportunity. When I walked through the door, I saw you, I saw life. I saw youth, the laughter, the energy. <laughs> Made me say, hey man, this is some place where I feel like I can make a difference. Though I worked in the um as in the um as custodian capacity. I knew that there was plenty time, plenty opportunity in between what I do to make a difference in somebody's life. So as time went on, I stayed there for um, maybe about three weeks. And um, they asked me, would I like to work there? And I had to fill out the application for them and they um, and I told them about my past, and they still was determined to embrace me. And despite anything that has transpired in my past, despite my records and all of that, so they <clears throat> they embraced me. So I in turn have embraced them, and I feel obligated and committed to Cherokee Charter. I love Cherokee Charter. I don't make no any money at Cherokee Charter. I've been there for five years and every single human being on the facility staff, I've been there longer than, and all of them make the exact same amount of money that I make. Um, I've had opportunities to work in detention centers again, but I've passed them up. You know, I passed up that arena or right. the arena that I have. I clean bathrooms. I, to me, it's no big deal because I've worked on a chain game. So there's nothing work-wise that they could possibly bring my way that's too hard or too difficult or so-called beyond me to do. So it's like you said, you have that sense of loyalty because someone stuck, someone took that chance and said, I think he can do something good. And it's awesome. You don't see that every day, you know, and, and I've talked to their kids and it seems like everybody seems to, to really love you, man. And I mean, really, you are like a rock star up there. All the kids, <laughs> you know, and when we were up there and they came up there, we kind of interrupted your groove. And the kids were like, you didn't, we didn't see you today during lunch, Mr. Spencer. And, you know, they, you can tell that you really do make a big difference in their life every day. I mean, and it sounds like you've made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. You know, even through the ups and downs of your journey, you, you have made a huge impact on a lot of people. My philosophy in life, man, is each one, teach one. Everybody has something in them that they can share with someone that don't know it. And I feel like it would be the most selfish thing on the planet to have skills and have knowledge and don't share it while you're here. You can't take it with you. Right. You know, knowledge is universal. It's not personal. I should not hold it personal to me. And that's the same way with drawing. You know, it's the same way with basketball. 
it's the same way with just anything that I know how to do. Right. Um, it's absolutely no good to me. Do you get to participate? I know that some of these drawings that you've done, I know that the art teacher has done lessons on some of these. Do you still get to participate with the kids with the All art? the time. All the time. They, they have an open door policy with me in that school. I can go in the art class, art room anytime, anytime and do whatever. Is this one of them they have displayed? At no, school? that particular picture right there, um, I was looking in a... Um, a um a ebony magazine and it was depicting in a city youth in new york city and um it was just a kid in a magazine that was standing on a street corner with some of his other hooligan friends <laughs> um with nowhere to with nothing real constructive to do in the inner city of New York. And it was just um, his, that particular face um, intrigued me. So um, I just embarked upon drawing it. That's what I got. I get a lot of inspiration from um, pictures and magazines and books and stuff. Just things that you relate to? Or mm -hmm. just so I could, re that particular kid I could relate to. I could relate to a kid on the corner um, hot in the summertime with nothing to do with the, opening up the fire hydrants, causing malice and mayhem, you know. Kind of so, almost bring you back to your childhood almost, mm -hmm. right? So that's what inspired me to draw that particular picture right there. We've got another picture. Do number five, Matt. Yeah, you want to do the... Yeah. That particular picture right there um, is meaningful probably than any of the more, any of the other ones that I've ever drawn. And I've drawn ones that, um, I've drawn ones that have sold for a considerable amount of money. And I've drawn ones that to observers probably would be a much better picture. But that picture I drew when I was working at the facility for um, developmentally challenged kids when I was an art teacher there. Me and one of the um, clients embarked upon that picture right there. So that not only has me in that picture, it's a um, a man that's, um, that's like 58 years old that's lived in group homes all of his life. Hmm. has never had a meaningful relationship and he has have had to have adult supervision his entire life. He and I drew that picture right it's there. It's a beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. It I is. It's got a lot of emotion in it. You mm -hmm. can feel it when you look at it. I mean, just the eyes and yeah, like there's he, a lot of soul in that picture. The way he's looking, just yeah. like he's searching for something almost, you know? Yeah, so that's the story behind that. Do you still um, do art for for clients? Do you still um, do portraits for clients? I do. You do. I do. It's just finding room these days to. I mean, to time do, because these you're days so to busy. Yeah. And were you gonna do the last one? Did yeah. You want to pull that one up. That one. Yeah. That yeah. One, that one. 
Um, that right there is an oil pastel that I actually did in about 25 minutes at Cherokee Charter That's in the in the art room. They the um, art teacher had put a picture of Van Gogh up there, and the assignment was for everybody to try to draw what they see as best as they could capture it. Yeah, and their interpretation of it, right? So I was passing by the art room one day, and they were doing Van Gogh, and I sat down with them and came up with that. I love the colors. I do the blue. The, the colors, the it's color vibrant. The beard, they really complement each other that was like um the one that really caught my eye that i saw when we got in that conversation at the school was uh, it was a still life i think of fruit mm-hmm. and it was it had the yellow and the yeah, blue and pastel. it was really just really beautiful colors and i could tell that you had just put a lot of thought in, into the complementary colors and the way everything was sitting and it was just really beautiful thank you and I can tell, you know, even though it didn't take you that long here, you can see the colors in the beard and the and the blue, and they just all melt together just so beautifully. Thank you. It reminds me of a painting. The colors you use there, it actually reminds me of a painting, the Starry Night painting. You know, the one Van Gogh. Yeah, yeah that's I know which one it, it, when you see when you When I saw that and I saw those colors, I, mm-hmm. I said, man, it, it really just... It has that blue. Yeah, it, it's so beautiful and vibrant. And the look on his face, his eyes, they're just very... Even the color of his eyes, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. You're you are you're really talented, Spencer. Thank you, man. You're welcome. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know that. And the art, I, when you, I, I find it really cool that you say you have an open door because I bet it's a treat whenever you come in there to the art class. I bet people are like they kind of spark up and they say, Oh man, this is going to be an exciting class. You know, they always spark up when they see Mr. Spence. All right. Though, Even right? when we mention you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like when you see him up there at the school and the kids are giving him hugs and their eyes are just so big and you know, I, they, they love you. Well, thank you. It's good for the kids to have that, you know, cause like you said, they're young, impressionable and, it's nice to have no matter, even if it's just a little word, you say, a word of encouragement or or even just a you know a nice nod or something that makes a difference in a kid you know because mm-hmm. there might be some kids like you said that their home life maybe it's not the best but when they come to school like you were saying that's that's kind of like you know what i'm excited to come to school mm-hmm. i get to talk with my friends i get to see the teachers mr spencer and it just it makes my day. I think you make them feel like more than just, you make them feel like an individual. Like they're more than just a child. They're more than just a second thought. Like you you just, you took the moment to say, hey, or give them a high five or open Mm. a packet of ketchup or whatever it is. It's those little things, you know, even to a kid. You show that they matter. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. If it's anything really that I, if I could sum it up, sum up um, everything that I've talked about here today. Um, If I had a message for any youngster, um, um, it probably would be all of us have to start somewhere. All of us have to start off from somewhere. We all, um, not all, but a lot of us come from um, 
starts that wasn't necessarily the most ideal in the world, you know. Um, but my message is don't give up and don't use excuses. I, I meet a lot of kids when I'm working in these juvenile detention centers that um, use excuses like I don't know my um, my dad, I don't know my mom, you don't know my situation, you don't know my situation, but we can't allow our situations to define us. You know, we can't remain in a situation. I don't, I don't know who my dad is. I've never met him. The man that I thought was my dad when I went to his funeral, I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the obituary. My brother was. Come to find out, I wasn't. His his new wife that he had married for forty years or whatever um, didn't put me in the obituary. And if I was very um, fragile, that would have just totally tore me to pieces. You know, so I don't know who my real dad is. I never met my grandmother. My I come from a very, very abusive situation. I used to wet the bed until I was in the sixth grade. Every day my dad would his um approach to helping me stop urinating in the bed was to come in my room every single morning and make me take off and check to see if I had piss. And usually I had, and he would make me take my underwear off and ball them up like a washcloth and suck all the urine out of them every single morning. And that's how I went to school most mornings. And um, I witnessed shootings. My mom shoot my stepdad. I witnessed my stepdad drowning my mother in the toilet stool repeatedly. So I just said that to say, man, we all got somewhere where we started that wasn't um, necessarily the best place in the world, man. But don't give up. Don't um, give in to um, making excuses for yourself. Excuses because we all have one. I got all the excuses in the world not to succeed. I mean, I got all the excuses not to succeed. But I think that I consider myself a very successful human now. Um, I have four grandkids. I have a wife that loves me. I'm a homeowner. I own two or three toys that adults make your life fun as an adult. <laughs> two or three dogs, you know. So um, it came, it all came full circle. Um, sometimes we won't go the traditional route in life. Some of us gonna have to go the scenic route, you know, but um, I guess summing it up, I would say that as things go wrong, as they sometimes will, and the route that you're traveling seems all uphill, when your um, debts are high and your funds is low. And my philosophy is just don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. I could have quit a long time ago, but it's something about this thing called life that I love and I don't take lightly what I learned in science years ago. And that's um, when 
that female carries one egg and the male carries um, millions of eggs. And, and the um, process of making love or um, sex, millions of sperm cells are released, man, millions to try to get to one egg. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky as hell. I was that one man. You were that one lucky one. We we're all that. So yeah. man, to just think about it. Mm-hmm. We're everybody that's on the earth is that that's lucky. Right. I was very, very lucky. So man, I live life now, man. I'm proud of my life. I'm happy. I don't have too many. I don't have a lot of worries, man. <laughs> and um, I have a child's heart. You know, my favorite song of all time is yeah. Michael Jackson's song, "With a Child's Heart." There you go. Nothing can ever get you down. Take life easy, like a sunny, sunny day. Just being alive makes it all so very sweet, you know. So That's beautiful. there you have it. It is. Bench, I really want you to know how much we appreciate you coming on the show yes. and just letting people know what you've been through and that you know, uh, to go with one of the inspirational quotes that uh, I try to do at the end of every show. And I think this kind of coincides with what you're trying to put out there to people is act like what you do makes a difference Mm -hmm. because it does no matter who you are, where you've come from and where you're going, it makes a difference to somebody. Mm -hmm. So I just really want to thank you, man. And, you know, uh, this has been a great time listening to you and I hope that I hope you'll come back again. I will. So, cause we'd love to have you on again. And, and I, I just want you to know that I, we really appreciate it. We do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. This has been help. I need an adult at Fogwater studios. Remember guys, everybody matters.